I suspect that you like to eat, right? I suspect that's true. Uh, and rightfully so, uh, God has created us to eat. Our physical bodies need food to survive. That being said, I think it's fair to say that we've taken it maybe a little too far. Maybe. Uh, here in America, most developed countries, food is, you might say, an obsession. Whether it's overeating or undereating or healthy eating, there's no end to our fascination with food. And if we're not obsessed with the consumption of food, we're obsessed with where it came from and how it's processed. Whether our demands are farm-to-table or to order from some secret menu, most Americans are fixated on food. Now, to soothe the conscience, the Bible is fixated on food. Eating and drinking are, eating and drinking are often spoken of in the Bible— in fact, to eat and drink is to be prosperous. Solomon writes, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful. There's some wisdom in that. Conversely, to not eat is, well, disaster. Famine and drought are used by God as judgment. We see this many places in the Old Testament. Even Jesus predicts that at the end of the age, the end of all things, the day of the Lord, there's going to be a famine. There's not going to be any food. Now, of course, the internet has a lot to say about this, right? As you, you know, uh, according to the internet, we're supposed to ask three questions of our food. Where does it come from? How is it produced? And, of course, is it in season? These are the three questions we're supposed to ask of our food, and if we ask them, well, it'll tell you what or what not to eat. I suppose these questions might be an improvement on the typical, well, how many calories does it have in it? Does it have trans fat, nitrates, or God forbid, does it have high fructose corn syrup? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with asking any of these questions. They're good questions. We certainly have Christian liberty to eat and to drink pretty much anything we want. That being said, I'm going to suggest that we might be asking the wrong questions of our food. As you know, this morning we're moving into John chapter 6 in our study on the Gospel of John. And I believe this chapter suggests that we need to ask bigger questions of our food. We need to move from the what, where, and the how to the why. The why question. Why did God create food? Why did God create the, the, the hunger? Why did he create hunger or, or the longing for food? Why did he create these things? The feeling of being filled. God could have just as, just as easily created a world without these elements. He didn't have to put these elements into the world. Why did he do that? Why thirst? Why hunger? Why bread? John Piper in his book entitled Hunger for God, he's attempted to answer these questions, and he, his answer is direct. He says, quote, God created bread 
so that we would have some idea of what the Son of God is like when He says, I am the bread of life. And He created the rhythm of thirst and satisfaction so that we would have some idea of what faith in Christ is like when Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Piper is suggesting that God has designed our longing and our satisfaction in food to help us see that Jesus is what we ought to long for and where our satisfaction is to be found. And I believe this, above all else, is really what John 6 is about. In some ways, it's really what John is about. Jesus is the source of our longing. I'm sure that you've sensed your appetite this morning. Maybe you've eaten breakfast and you're sleepy. Or you haven't eaten and you're eager to leave. Either way, your appetite is there. You sense it. You know it's there. And so the question John wants us to consider in John 6 is this. Do I have an appetite for God? Do I hunger for His presence? Do I hunger for his glory. John Piper again. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, that is, you don't long for God's glory to be on display in the world, if you don't desire that, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied, he writes, it's because you have nibbled at the table of the world. Your soul is is. Uh, your, your soul is stuffed with small things, and there's no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God. And, Piper says, it can be awakened. Is it possible that God might use John 6 to awaken my appetite for him? Well, that's my prayer. That's been my prayer this whole study in John 6. That in the end, we might declare, the psalmist, Psalm 63, 1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. If you would, please stand for the reading of John chapter 6. Verses 1 through 15. We're going to see a miraculous meal. John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would, what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This miraculous meal unfolds in four scenes. We're going to look at those four scenes this morning. I'm kind of borrowing this outline from someone. We'll look at these four scenes, and then after that, we'll draw out some applications, some lessons from the scene. So we'll kind of make our way through the text and then do some application at the end. In this first scene, we'll, we'll see the fickle crowds. This is scene one, the fickle crowds. As John 6 begins, Jesus is north of Jerusalem in Galilee. It's likely that Jesus has been ministering in Galilee for some time. Jesus has come to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee. This is what John means when he says the other side, the far side of the sea being determined from the west. So he was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Using Mark and Matthew's gospel, we discover two reasons why Jesus and the disciples withdrew to the eastern side of the lake. Mark 6 tells us that they had just returned from a preaching ministry in and around Galilee, and Matthew 14 reveals that they had just heard of John the Baptist's death. So you might imagine uh, these men, Jesus and the disciples, were seeking a time of rest and some reflection, thinking about John the Baptist and the work that they had been doing. Unfortunately, uh, Jesus had gathered such a following that these men wouldn't have such an opportunity, or it was hard to have such an opportunity. And so verse 2, as we, as we saw, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, John doesn't say much at this point about these crowds, but they are fickle. It is a fickle crowd. That is, they weren't motivated by a pure faith or a genuine love in Jesus. Rather, they only followed Jesus because of his signs. This will kind of unfold as we work our way through this chapter. What we'll discover is that while they flocked to see his works, they could not put faith in his words. So the crowds pressed in. Uh, it appears they were able to get some kind of respite in verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. John tells us in verse 4 that it was the Passover. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Somewhat of a, kind of a parenthetical statement, he adds this, and it helps us to place these events several months after the events of chapter 5. And so there's a period of time between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Uh, and this also suggests some kind of motive maybe for the crowds with Passover at hand. As Christians, we think about the Passover, and we think about the theology of it. That is, we think of the, the rich symbolism that, that is fulfilled in Christ when we think about the Passover. However, in this passage and in Jesus' day, the Passover feast was to Jews as the 4th of July is to Americans, you might say. Uh, it was a rallying point for intense nationalistic zeal. 
and that helps us maybe understand a little bit more about verse 15, where it says they wanted to, to make Jesus king. In the second scene, we'll see the faithless disciples. This is our second scene, the faithless disciples in verses 5 through 9. Now, Matthew's gospel, John doesn't tell us this, but Matthew's gospel tells us that the day was dragging on. And so his disciples, Jesus' disciples, said to him, the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. That's from Matthew's gospel. Of course, Jesus has other ideas. He turns to Philip and he says in verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? John doesn't tell us why Philip is singled out, but John does tell us that Jesus spoke these words to test Philip. He's testing Philip. Of what was Philip's faith? Could he think so much of Jesus that Jesus might provide food for the crowds? Well, we don't have to wonder long. What does verse 7 tell us? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip's response is carnal. It's fleshly. He leaves no room for the supernatural. He shuts down the possibility of a sign. Now, a denarius was a day's wages for a common worker, and so 200 denarii would represent about eight months' wages. Even with such a sum, these people wouldn't have even had a little something to eat. Philip might have added, where would we even purchase such a stockpile of bread? Seems one impossibility is enough to consider. In Mark's gospel, we learn that Jesus had instructed the disciples to find out how much food the crowd had. He, he sent them out in the crowd to, to kind of investigate what does everybody have. Andrew returns, verses 8 and 9. There's a boy here who has five barley, uh, one of his disciples, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, then verse 9, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? You can almost see Andrew shrug his, shrug his shoulders. He's dripping in doubt. Uh, nothing, nothing can solve the dilemma. A great crowd to feed, yet all we have here is five barley loaves and two fish. Like Philip, John doesn't tell us why Andrew is singled out in the narrative. We don't know why. And thinking about these disciples, I don't think John is singling out Philip or Andrew uh, to single out their faithlessness in particular. I don't think that's true. It's not like, uh, you know, after this, any other disciple rises up and says, you know, they have some great faith that Jesus can do the miraculous. Nobody does that. And so, Philip, Andrew, the rest of the twelve, John included we might say, have failed the test. As the second scene closes, none have suggested that Jesus might be moved to do the miraculous. So we move to our third scene. Let's call this third scene the fulfilling dinner. The fulfilling dinner, and this is verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distrib distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten up their fill, eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So as the disciples stare into space, Jesus commands the disciples to have the crowds sit down. Mark tells us the crowds sat in groups of hundreds and fifties, which is probably how they came up with this number of 5,000. The Bible only gives us a count of men. It's reasonable to think, you probably heard this before, that with women and children we have something, something about, uh, um, about 15 to 20,000 people that are gathered here on the mountain. And so uh, I think Mechanics Bank Arena is about 10,000 people and here locally in Bakersfield. And if you've ever been to Staples Center in L.A., that's 20,000. So there's a lot of people that were gathered on these hills. Something that always strikes me about this miracle is how understated it's given to us. John is very understated in his explanation of it. He gives us a record of the miracle almost without recording the miracle. Lenski comments to this point. He says, in, in points such as this, the, the, the control of inspiration is tangible. For an ordinary writer would certainly elaborate on this great climax of this account. If we told the story, we would certainly embellish the story. But, as Linsky suggests, the simplicity of the miracle argues for divine inspiration. He continues, that is Linsky, and says, not even a single exclamation. Not one word beyond the bare facts that John saw and heard. We're not even told that a miracle was taking place. Not even that the food kept multiplying as it was being handed out, or how many each sheet of bread and each fish served, end quote. All we know is that Jesus gave and gave and gave and gave, and there was always more to give. John doesn't mention it, but the other gospels tell us that Jesus had the, had the disciples distribute the food. John does mention that these disciples were instructed to gather up the leftovers, so they distributed the food, and then they were instructed to gather it up. The leftovers, that is. These facts suggest that the miracle serves as a response to the disciples' faithlessness. They're kind of at the center of the miracle in many ways. Now, the baskets used to pick up these leftovers, this was a small wicker basket. This is different than the basket that was used or the baskets that were used in the similar miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. Remember, Jesus did another miracle very, very similar to this, but the baskets are different. That is, the, the terms used are different. This basket here is a, is a personal basket, kind of a traveling basket. We might even call it a backpack. It's really what this basket is. John is telling us that each man filled his backpack with the leftovers. Thus, each man could carry tangible evidence of the miracle and, you might say, the next day's meal. The drama of the story is quite clear to us. Jesus begins with this test question. Where can we get bread for all these people? The disciples respond with cynicism. We don't have the money to feed these people. And all these people don't have the resources. We've searched them out. In fact, all we have is this boy with some crackers and sardines. It's from here that we read in verse 11 that the crowds ate as much as they wanted. They ate as much as they wanted. And then verse 13, that there were even leftovers. 
Thus, the lavish supply surpasses the snack. And the lavish supply summons the men to believe, which is what John is doing on every page of this book. Jesus confronts their faithlessness with fulfillment. We've seen this before. He doesn't rebuke them. He provides. He reaches out His hands and He pulls faith forward. You might even say He awakens faith. There's a final scene. Call it the false coronation. The coronation being a ceremony in which someone becomes king. This is what the crowds attempted to do in verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In the first scene, you remember, we saw the crowds. They only followed Jesus for the signs that he performed. In in this final scene, we discover that they're interested in a personal Messiah. They were seeking an earthly deliverer who could meet their physical needs, one who might overthrow the Roman Empire. Moses did write, Deuteronomy 18.15, he wrote about a prophet, a future prophet. And it's likely that's what the crowds mean when they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. It's a reference to that prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 18. Lenski imagines the desire of the crowd, he writes, they would carry him to Jerusalem at the coming Passover in a grand royal procession, gathering increasing adherents on the way, sweeping the capital off its feet in universal enthusiasm. Remember that nationalistic kind of zeal that I spoke about. This is what the crowds hope to do. This wouldn't be unlike the triumphal entry we read about later when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as the crowds shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us! Now, Jesus did permit the crowds to do that. In John 6 here, he's not ready for such things. That time will come. But such means will not be needed at this point. Jesus will get to Jerusalem on his own terms and when the time is right. And so, maybe miraculously, I'm not sure, Jesus finds a way to escape this false coronation. And so we read, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Again, using some kind of tactic, he is able to escape and find solitude. And so, we have the miracle. We have a miraculous meal in four scenes, the fickle crowd, the faithless disciples, the fulfilling dinner, and the false coronation. Now, I said from this, there are some lessons to draw out. Probably, the Lord, I trust, is working even in your hearts just in the study and reading of it. Uh, Here's three that I'd like to draw out. The first lesson is this. Jesus cannot be manipulated. Jesus cannot be manipulated Here we start where the story ended. Jesus is not a model to be fashioned how we like. And Jesus never comes to us on our terms. The church must always be cautious against, or have caution against presenting Jesus as a quick fix to our problems. Apparently, that's how the crowd saw Jesus. They rightly identified him. He was the prophet come into the world. But their approach was wrong. You might remember last week we discovered how the Jewish 
opposition to Jesus, brought the, I said they brought the Scriptures to themselves. You remember chapter 5, verse, uh, what is it, verse 39, you search the Scriptures, Jesus says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. They missed it. They weren't seeing through the Scriptures and seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Well, no one, accu- no one would accuse those Jews of not seeing something significant in the Scriptures in the same way the crowds see something significant in Jesus. However, their approach was wrong. Like the Jews, here we see the crowds bringing Jesus to themselves instead of bringing themselves to Jesus. While the benefits of knowing Jesus are unsearchable, we have to be very careful in appro- approaching Jesus through our felt needs. Needs like health and wealth and self-esteem. Don't get me wrong. Jesus has the, po- the power to heal broken relationships. He has the power to make one successful in life. He has the uh, power to, to help us feel good about ourselves. He does have those things, and those things do happen. But if these are our highest pursuits, well, our faith might be found wanting. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't grant us many things. Even in this gospel, we read John 15, 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Joy and peace are the benefits of knowing Jesus. But... If we think these are ours to the exclusion of sorrow or the storm, well, we've been misguided. I'm often reminded of Cowper's glorious hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He captures this well. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The crowds judge the Lord, as Cowper says, by feeble sense. The thinking was inadequate and ultimately ineffective because they wished for him on his terms. Thomas Carlyle famously said, Men are like the gods they serve. Kent Hughes said, We conduct our lives according to the concept of the God to whom we bow. There's deep insight in these words. Our lives are an illustration of our God. That is, the God we imagine. Which is why our understanding and our study of the Scriptures is so important. The question before us is this, does my life produce a portrait of Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible? Or does my life produce a portrait of another Jesus? Even worse, is my life a mere self-portrait? I pray not. There's a second lesson found in this story, and it's this. Jesus uses what we have. Jesus uses what we have. As a worldly assessor, Andrew was right. What were five barley loaves and two fish among so many? Even more, a barley loaf was the cheapest of all breads. 
This is really food for the poor. This is poor man's food. Jesus didn't have to use bread to do the miracle. He didn't have to do that. John has already told us in chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him and without him. Not anything made that was there, not anything made was made. Jesus made everything. Everything was created through him and by his words. He spoke the world into existence. Thus, he could have easily spoken this meal into existence, but he didn't do that. Remember, verse 6 also tells us that he knew what he was going to do. He knew what he would do. From the beginning to end, Jesus has planned all of this out, and he knows the outcome. Therefore, every part of this miracle is uniquely crafted by Jesus. It's by design. The question given to the disciples, as John says, is offered to test the disciples' faith. And Jesus knew that sending the men out in the crowds, they knew that they would return with a boy in his lunch sack. He knew that. Why the boy? Why the lunch sack? I agree with Kent Hughes' assessment. He says, quote, He wanted his disciples to see that no matter what they had, even the tiniest or most menial thing, if they really gave it to him, he could use it. Little is much when God is in it. He wanted them to see that truth in a most dramatic demonstration. If you're a note taker, write that down. Little is much when God is in it. In my life, I like to say, God makes 10 out of 9. I got 9 pieces and somehow he always makes 10. When we have an abundance, it's easy to offer it to God. If we're good at our jobs, it's easy to say, God, take my labor and use it. If we're good students or we have talent in doing something, it's not hard to say, God, take this thing, whatever it is, and use it for your glory. If the disciples would have rolled back to Jesus with a collection of 200 denarii of bread, if they somehow would have went out in the crowd and collected up that 200 denarii of bread and brought it to him, well, they might have actually tried to feed the crowds with it. But the Lord knew that they would not find such abundance. And he did this to demonstrate that we must give God what we have, even our weaknesses. I think we often miss God's work through us because we're not able to give him our weaknesses. We assess the angles, we calculate the costs, and we decide to decline. We only see five barley loaves and two fish, and we declare, what are they for so many? Church, God is for you. God is on our side. And it's always been, God has always been on the, on the side of his people. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts him to himself to show mercy to you. Do you believe that, that God is on your side? For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. You remember what Paul told us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What a profound statement. God wants to help us. He wants to pour out his grace on us. He wants to hold you in his hand. Remember what James said. Draw near to him and what? He will draw near to you. Whatever you're up against, friends, God is big enough for your problem. If God is big enough to feed these 5,000 plus with five loaves and two fish, he's big enough to solve your problem with whatever deficiency you have to offer. There's a good quote from Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot. You might remember Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband in the mission field. He was killed. He was Ecuador. She says, The only thing you have to offer is a broken heart. You offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the loss of her husband, the recognition that this is material, that is offering the broken heart, that this is material for sacrifice, has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am will be refused on the part of Christ, I simply give it to him as a little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fish, with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Just give it to Jesus. Put your hands up and say, I don't know if this is good enough, but I give you my broken heart. She goes on. Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, the use he makes of it is none of my business. It is his business. It's his blessing. So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is, which at, which at the, the moment is God's means, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who he is, that is the thing that I can offer. Little is much when God is in it. Let us give to God our deficiency and watch him feed 5,000 Jesus cannot be manipulated. Jesus uses what we have, and there's a, a third and final point of application, and we'll close with this final application. And it brings us back to my opening comments. It's this. Jesus is the source of satisfaction. The true source of satisfaction. Jesus is the fountainhead. Let me remind you about how John put together his gospel. He gives us a sign and then a speech. He always kind of puts them together. And he does this to bring out the meaning. There's a miracle and then a, a discourse or a, a long kind of narrative part where Jesus is speaking and he's, a, he's unpacking the truth behind that sign. He turns the water to wine and he tells Nicodemus about the new birth. He heals the nobleman's son. He speaks to the Samaritan woman about the water of life. He heals the lame man and he declares himself to be the divine son. All of these things we've studied up to this point. As we'll see later, Jesus will heal a blind man and he'll declare what? I am the light of the world. Here, he feeds 5,000 and he will declare, as we'll see in the coming weeks, I'm the bread of life. Therefore, 
The feeding of the 5,000 is a setup, the setup for the speech that will follow. In other words, Jesus does this miracle so that he can say, I am the bread of life. That's why he does it. And to say shockingly, which we'll explain in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you which is a statement that led many to leave him. Which I believe is to say, to eat and drink is to behold and to believe. If Jesus is the creator of the world, if all things have come into existence through him, and he is the bread of life, then bread and our hunger for it can teach us something about Jesus. And I believe it's this. Jesus is the true source of satisfaction. This is why the psalmist can say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't know about you, but studying this book, I just keep running back to that and fighting for that in my heart. Oh, I know that to be true, and I want to believe it with every fiber of my being. Every time I long for something, I want to see Jesus as the true source of that longing. I believe that's what this is about. I believe that's what this book is about. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Why can the psalmist use a deer and the deer's longing for something? Because every longing in this world is, is to make the point that Jesus is the fountainhead. He's the top. He's the source of, our tr- of the true source of satisfaction in our lives. Whatever it is that we're trying to fill our lives with. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Listen to what prophet Isaiah says. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Why is he saying that? Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why are you out there seeking satisfaction in the world? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do I do that? And then he says, listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ears and come to me here that your soul may live. Jesus is the answer. And Jesus himself can say, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And where do we find true satisfaction? Jesus. As we make our way through John, John 6, the bread symbolism is complex. There's a lot more to say about the bread 
a rich symbolism that speaks to Israel's history, and we'll unpack some of that as we move forward. But I think what's most important is this. Jesus is the supplier of our deepest needs. He is, as I've said, the true source of our satisfaction. Amen? Joel?